Well, church, I would like to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we continue our study of this wonderful Gospel, this story of our Lord Jesus Christ, and so we'll be in chapter 22 this morning, beginning in verse 47. You find that on page 882 in the Pew Bible in front of you, and if you do not have a copy of God's Word, we certainly would love for you to take that Bible sitting right there in front of you, and you take that home, and it's your very own a copy of God's Word, and that might bless you in that way. You're still finding your way to Luke 22. I, I do just want to thank you and, I guess, thank the Lord for a week of prayer and uh, an opportunity to pray in one accord with you. And so we prayed through the prayer guide and prayed in our community groups and had a number of times of prayer. Many of you, I know, uh, we all fasted together. Uh, yesterday from sunrise to sunup as we sought the Lord and asked Him to make us dependent for, on Him and desperate for Him. And then to culminate our prayer service last night and uh, our prayer week in this prayer service last night uh, was uh, certainly the highlight of my year so far. And I think that was an evening that those of us who were able to attend will not soon forget a rich, rich blessing on us as we sought the Lord. And I'm so thankful, especially for those of you who are able to make that. It was a great encouragement to me, as I trust it was for you. Now the work is to keep on praying that God will make us more and more into a praying people dependent upon him and desperate for him. Well, we see uh, here that the Lord has been prepared for what befalls him because of his prayer that we considered last week, and so we pick up the story here in Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 47. Hear now the word of God. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve who was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. He touched his ear and healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Our Father, we... We come before this, uh, what I would consider a feast before us today, a feast for our souls. We come with hungry souls. As we continue to plunge into the depths of the work of Christ and the cost of our redemption. Give us fresh eyes and eager hearts to hear a familiar story. Help us to grow in our appreciation for what Christ has done for us, and in appreciating his work, 
we would grow in our appreciation of him who did it. Help us, even as our brother Mark has challenged us today. In light of the truths in which we consider, you would have more of our hearts. That we, by your grace, would offer more love to thee. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in Alexander Dumas's classic book, The Count of Monte Cristo, it's a story of a young man named Edmund Dantist who is uh, betrayed by some very close friends. And as a result, Edmund is sentenced to life in prison, and not in any prison, but the Chateau d'If, this uh, cold and um, uh, impressive castle where he would spend the rest of his days. He happened there to meet a fellow prisoner, a wise old man named Abe Faria. And, and fast forwarding through the book, Abe Faria uh, helps Edmund escape the Chateau d'If, and in addition, he tells him where to find this hidden treasure, the treasure of Monte Cristo. And Emendantis, he, he goes and he discovers this treasure, this escaping, and, and now he has treasure beyond his imagination. And, and you know what he does with that treasure? He immediately goes and helps the poor, right? He, uh, he uses it to fight corruption, right? I'm afraid not. No, Edmund uses his massive wealth to bring about surprising and ironic revenge upon his hated enemies, bringing them to financial ruin, public disgrace, and even suicide. Now, I've read this book, and I must admit, I rather enjoy it. Um, Probably shouldn't. Um, but it is a, a powerful and beautifully written book, and I, I think it in many ways appeals to perhaps a darker side that resides within me that rejoices in the idea of people getting what's coming to them, right? rejoices in revenge. Do you have that side in you somewhere, deep down, maybe not so deep? When you are uh, betrayed sinned against? Do you ever root for some type of revenge? Do you ever kind of cheer for that in their heart? That you, you know, nothing too drastic, of course, but you kind of want them to learn their lesson. You want that kind of this to come around on top of them. And there is, there's something, I think, to our, at least to our fleshly nature, there's something satisfying with people getting what we believe that they deserve. Well, we come here to a story of Jesus' betrayal. He is deeply wronged by everyone in the room. And rather than revenge, quite to the contrary of Edmund Dantist, and probably, perhaps, maybe, to the contrary of your instinct, Jesus gives grace. Grace after grace after grace. Not just to Judas in his treachery, but to the disciples in their folly, and even to these evil religious leaders who come to carry him away. You see, sinners are surrounding Jesus, and one by one, Jesus offers grace. I think when we consider this story, it would be best to see yourself in it. And by the way, you are not the hero. You're not the one in the center. 
No, you, you would be helped, I think, to see yourselves, find yourselves in these sinners who surround the Lord Jesus. I think Jesus wants us to see it. You, we've been looking, uh, working our way through Luke, of course, and we came to the Last Supper. Remember, and Jesus says, by the way, the whole Passover all pointed to me, and I'm going to spill my blood, and my body's going to be broken in order to atone for sins. And then right after that, right, he says, and, and by the way, one of you is going to betray me, and the rest of you will desert me, and, 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 and Simon, you will desert deny me. And I think what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to communicate that the sins for which I'm dying for are not the sins out there. It's the sins in this room. Judas and Peter and John and you and me. He dies for sinners. I hope that this passage, my prayer, that this passage would help you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, know your sin. And therefore, appreciate the grace in which you have received in Christ. Now, you know, of course, we are in the final chapters in Luke's gospel. We've seen the Passover. Jesus, after finishing the Passover, we saw last time he enters the garden. And there he seeks to draw near to the Father instead of finding uh, heaven open to him and his soul refreshed. He sees a cup thrust before him and the chasm open before him. And he becomes such agony and terror, the Bible says in anguish, that he pleads with God for this divine wrath to pass away from him. He asks not once, not twice, but three times, God, is there another way? Can we do this another way? And it's in the midst of this kind of time in prayer and exhorting the apostles to do likewise that Judas the betrayer arrives. So consider, first of all, this morning, Judas's betrayal, as you note in verse 47. While he was speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Now the picture is Jesus is riding from his bloody prayers among the olive trees there in the secret garden, and a crowd approaches as Jesus is exhorting his apostles that they too must rise and pray that they enter not into temptation. This crowd is able to find Jesus in his secret garden because they are led by Judas, who Luke reminds us is one of the twelve. He's one of the inner circle. He's an apostle. And so he, unlike the crowd, knew exactly where Jesus would be, being one of his friends. In fact, the friendship between Jesus and Judas, I believe, is emphasized here in how it is that Jesus draws near to him. You notice he, he draws near to kiss him. It's kind of odd, isn't it, don't you think, when you're betraying someone to plant a kiss on their cheek? Of course, a kiss is, a, is an intimate expression of, of love, of friendship. Now, you, you know, of course, that uh, kisses were more common in that day. Uh, you would greet others with a kiss. That would be not unusual. But you know, and so this is how, the, if you met a friend, uh, you, you, would, you would plant a kiss on them. Just for clarity, I, I'm perfectly fine with a handshake. Uh, I don't know about you. Um, maybe a hug for some of you. Um, but, but back in that day, they, they would kiss. And so it's common, but do not make the mistake to think that, that even though it was common, it wasn't intimate. It was more than a handshake. Maybe it's more like a nice good hug. It's a sign of intimate friendship. It's an expression of love. In fact, the Greek word to kiss 
This may be a word you're familiar with. It's the word phileo. You know, that word is usually translated to love. It's the exact same word. And so you read this in the Greek, and it says Judas approached, and he phileo Jesus. To he, he, he kissed him. That is, he loved him. In the Bible language, to kiss is to love, usually. Of course, this is not a kiss out of love, is it? And so the kiss was the signal in which Judas has, has uh, explained to the, the guards and the crowd, the army, if you will, the, that he's going to identify Jesus with. In Matthew's account, we read that Judas tells them, the one I kiss is the man seized him. It's, it is, of course, in the middle of the night, it is dark, and you could, you could imagine Judas arriving first and the crowd staying behind, and, and they only will surround Jesus once Judas ade- identifies him. And so Judas perhaps would have said something like, you wait behind, I'll come up to him, I'm going to act like a close friend and kiss him, and that's the one you need to grab. He betrays Jesus with a kiss, and I think in doing so, he helps us because he gives us a picture of what sin is like. Sin, my friends, is not so much breaking God's law, but it's breaking God's heart. Sin is not simply a transgression, though it is. Sin is a betrayal, especially for those who have, of us who have received God's grace and mercy to cover it. And so do not think that sin is like, oh, I did five miles over the speed limit. I, I broke some impersonal law. No, sin is more like walking up to one whom you love and betraying them with affection. It's a betrayal. And I think it was a betrayal on the Lord Jesus. I think it must have particularly stung at our Lord's heart. You see, because <laughs> this was not just another enemy betraying Jesus and, and coming against Jesus. He's had plenty of those, and we'll see. Some of those will show up in just a minute. But this is, this is a friend of Jesus. This is one he, he loves. You think about Jesus taught Judas for the last three years. He showed him miracles. He graciously provided for his needs. Judas was there when Jesus calmed a storm and raised the dead even and fed 5,000, even with enough left over for a basketful for each apostle. He was involved in Jesus' ministry. Jesus sent him out with the other apostles with the, with the power and the authority to preach and to heal in the name of Jesus. And when Jesus rose to take the role of a servant and washed the apostles' feet, there was one who refused him, but it was not Judas. He loved Judas. And therefore, I believe the betrayal was not simply a slap from an enemy, but it was the betrayal with a kiss of a friend. Well, who would you, who would you rather betray you? A stranger or a loved one? You know, Psalm 55 actually answers that question. The psalmist says, it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who raises himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. What good fellowship we once enjoyed as we walked together to the house of God. Or consider Psalm 41, which was read for us this morning. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, 
has lifted his heel against me. Jesus will actually quote that psalm at the Lord's Supper, identifying that one of his close friends will be the one to lift his heel against me. This is one who was close. And for Jesus, just as for you, the closer you are to someone, the greater the pain it is when they turn on you. Can you imagine for a moment if uh, after, after the, the service and maybe a, a visitor walks up to me and says, Pastor, uh, you don't know me. This is my first time here. But that was the worst sermon I've ever heard. Okay. Now, I'm just, you have to use our imagination, okay? I know this is hard. Okay. And he says, yeah, well, that, that, was, that was the worst sermon I ever heard. And I'm leaving, and I am never coming back. And, and you know, you know what? I would, I, my reaction, quite honestly, would be, okay. A legger calls that my superpower. You know, just things just kind of roll off my back like that. And that's not that wouldn't be a problem for me. But, but change the illustration. Uh, I'm going to pick on you, Miss Esther. Uh, imagine my dear sister, Miss Esther, came up to me after the service and said, "You know, Stephen, that was the worst sermon I've ever heard, and I am leaving." And I am never coming back. Well, I wouldn't sleep well that night. And probably not for many nights after that. But imagine if it was my teenage daughter who came up to me and said, Hey, Dad, that was the worst sermon I've ever heard. I'm leaving and I'm never coming back. I would never be the same after that. You see, the closer you are, the greater the pain of the sin. And my question is, who are you to Christ? My brothers and sisters, are you too not his friend? Are you not his follower? Please understand that sin is a personal betrayal of the Lord. It is a rejection of him. It is not benign. It is not something to shrug your shoulders at and say, oh, that's just the way I am. It's a kiss of betrayal. It's a rejection of the one you love. And Jesus seems to feel this pain for you. Note what he says in verse 48. Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, it seems to me that Jesus is not really seeking information here. He's not asking the question because he needs an answer, like, are you really betraying me? He knows, of course, that Judas is betraying him. He asks the question not for his information, but for Judas's. He's trying to get Judas to see what he's doing. He's saying to Judas, search your heart. Do, do, do you realize we love each other? You, do you realize you're betraying me? You see what the Lord does to this very personal attack is he immediately responds with grace. Judas, what are you doing? And the Lord does not say to him, how dare you? He does not say, get away from me. He does not say, you filthy dog. Do you know what I have done for you the past three years? I have poured my life into you, and this is how you treat me. I never want to see you again. No, no, no. That is not our Lord. He is gentle and probing. He's saying, do you realize, Judas, what you're doing? You are betraying the Son of Man. You are betraying the everlasting ruler of the world. And once again, we see the Lord reach out to Judas, just as he did at the Lord's Supper when he says, one of you, I'm not going to name him, but one of you is going to betray me to let Judas know he knows in order to probe at Judas's heart. Jesus is saying to him, Judas, don't you know how close we are? We're close enough to kiss. We embrace. Can't you see 
what you're doing. He offers him grace. And Judas needs grace. I don't know if you're aware, but the phrase, the kiss of death, actually arose from this account. It's a way to express an action that leads to certain destruction. But of course, this action will not necessarily lead to Jesus' destruction, but Judas's. In fact, in Mark's account, Jesus says, it would be better for that man to not have been born. You You don't often hear that at funerals, do you? That is a damning pronouncement. It would be better for you, Judas, if you never existed. He was in desperate need of grace, and as we'll see in the coming chapters, he refused it. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I think it might be important for you to note that not everyone who calls themselves a Christian is. I think Judas is a very good example that there are some who appear close to Christ who end up turning on him. In other words, it's possible to be a Christian in name only. And, and, and by the way, going to church on a snowy Sunday morning is not enough to make sure you are truly a disciple of Christ. And sitting under Bible teaching is not enough. You know, Judas sat under some pretty good Bible teaching for like three years. He was in seminary with, for three years, and Jesus was the professor. And so that's a pretty good seminary. And it, it wasn't enough. And, and by the way, being in community group wasn't enough. Now, I think every Christian, if they're able to, ought to be in some type of group where uh, you, I think that's how God, one of the greatest means is sanctification and care. And, and I think we're supposed to live in community. I think the Bible's clear about that. But I'll tell you, it's not enough. Judas was in community group. He had a pretty good community group. All right, he had John in his community group. He wrote five books of the New Testament. That's not bad. He had Peter. He walked on water. That was pretty cool, right? And so he had a pretty good community group, and it was not enough. You see, the Bible is clear. You cannot lose your salvation. Once the Lord adopts you, he is not going to unadopt you. You are his and shall be forever. You can't lose your salvation, but you could fake it. And you could even fake yourself out, I'm afraid. It's called self-deception. It's hard to tell, right? And, and, and it's hard for anybody to tell. Remember when Jesus, as I reminded us, he said, one of you is going to betray me at the Lord's Supper. And remember what they all said? Remember their response? Oh, it's Judas. He's the weird one, right? Right? Uh, you know, in fact, uh, you know, Judas is always falling asleep during the preaching. And, and when, when we went all out on the preaching crusade, Judas was the only one who preached and no one got saved right? And he couldn't heal anybody, and we know it's Judas. Of course it's Judas. No, of course not. They, they had no idea. In fact, in one gospel, they begin to say, is it I? It might be me, right? You see, Judas is the older brother, isn't he? He looks like he's part of the family, but he serves the father as long as the father is useful to him. And so he'll read his Bible, and he'll go to church, but there's not much joy in his heart. He's hoping it'll pay off. Hoping he ends up getting a goat and he could go out and eat with his friends. I love the story that Tim Keller often tells that uh, when he was in college, he took a music, appre- a music appreciation class because it was an easy class. And so in the class, he had to listen to Mozart in order to pass the test. So he listened to Mozart to pass the test. And he wanted to pass the test to get a good, get a good grade. And he wanted to get a good grade to get a good GPA. And he wanted to get a good GPA in order to get into a good grad school. And he wanted to get into a good grad school in order to get a good job. And he wanted to get a good job in order to make lots of money. And so Keller says, I listened to Mozart to make money. Right? And then he says, 30 years later, I'd gladly give up money 
to listen to Mozart. Right? Both, both college-age Keller and middle-age Keller, both listening to Mozart, but for radically different reasons. Why do you follow Jesus? Why do you seek after him? Is it because of what he gives you or because you want him? You desire him. How do you know? Friends, do not look at it. You think about, okay, my assurance of salvation. Well, you know, when I was 15, I was baptized. Or when I was eight, I prayed a prayer. The pastor called us down. And that's how I know. Listen, Judas made a decision to follow Jesus too. You find your assurance in the day-to-day faith that you exercise in God, a desire to, lo- to know him and to follow him, a conviction of sin when you rebel against him, a-, a-, a longing to become more and more like him. And in this way, I think Judas's betrayal is very helpful as it probes our own heart. But he's not the only one who will fail the Lord. As you see, secondly, the apostles' folly, as Judas kisses the Lord, his Mob approaches him. The apostles soon realize what's going to happen, as you see in verse 49. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Right? They, they know what's about to happen. And so they, they ask this question, is it time to fight? Remember, earlier that evening, Jesus said, listen, sell your cloaks and get a sword. And they, very proud of themselves, came to Jesus. And they said, look, we already got two swords. Right? And, and now they want to know, is it time to use those swords. They're asking, right, should we open fire, in a sense? Now, it's probably a surprise to no one that one of those two swords was in Peter's possession, as John's gospel tells us. And we're probably also not surprised that Peter opens fire without permission, as you see in verse 50. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And so Peter begins to swing with poor aim and great determination. He, a man totally unprepared for this because I believe of his lack of prayer in the garden, he slices off this man's right ear. Now, it may be that Peter's aim was dead on and this man was wearing a very typical helmet that they would wear in this day, which would protect the head but leave the ears exposed. And it might have been that Peter struck him right between the eyes and the sword just happened to slide down the helmet and take off his ear. In other words, Peter is playing for keeps, you understand. Peter, Peter is clearly uh, trying to validate the boast that he has made earlier that evening, that he would never betray Jesus. Right? I'll never betray you. I'll go to prison for you, Jesus. Remember he said that? I'll, I'll die for you, Jesus. Remember he boasted that? And now we even see Peter, Peter saying, I'm willing to kill for you, Jesus. Now, just for clarity, no one ever should kill in the name of Jesus. Christ never calls for us to do that and much harm. In fact, whenever the church takes up the sword, only bad things happen. God gives the sword to the state and not to the church. And clearly it's a very foolish act. But it's foolish for many reasons. Uh, Not not just because it was sin, but because it plays right into their hands, doesn't it? They're going to spend the entire night trying to get a charge to stick on Jesus during the trial. And if the disciples start swinging swords and, and lopping off ears and taking down guards, well then it's very easy to charge Jesus as this dangerous revolutionary complete with a group of armed followers and his arrest therefore and subsequent execution is just done in the interest of public safety. 
would be folly for um, them to begin to attack. And therefore, as the blood falls to the ground and swords begin to be swung in the air, Jesus shouts above it all in verse 51, no more of this. Stop, he says. And I, I imagine everyone just froze with eyes on him. As Jesus reached down and picks a man's ear off the ground, and in breathtaking power, he reattaches it. As you see in verse 51, and he touched his ear and healed him. Now you imagine this man by the name, oh, by the way, his name is Malchus. We know this from John. You could clearly imagine Malchus with a bloody hand, you know, gingerly feeling his ear that has just been replaced by Jesus. It is abundantly clear that Jesus does not need their help, right? He just put an ear back on someone's head, right? Their swords are not going to do anything. He could take care of himself. And yet, what does Jesus do? He begins to love. He begins to give grace. In fact, I think what Jesus is doing here is just a beautiful picture of the gospel. That Out of compassion, he's showing his disciples what he has already taught them. That you and I are to love our enemies. We're to love them. Even when they come at us with swords and clubs, as we'll see in a moment. I wonder, how, how is it that you respond when you're betrayed? How do you respond when you're mistreated and you're sinned against? Is your response to give love, forgiveness, grace? That's one of the ways we spread the gospel. Certainly we spread it by a verbal proclamation. That goes without saying, I think, but... We also show the gospel, don't we? Not by attacking our enemies like some faiths would teach, but not by seeking revenge as maybe our darker side wants, but we, we show the gospel by loving our enemies even at personal cost to us, just as Christ has loved us, his enemies, at personal cost to him. I wonder, do you have enemies? You have enemies at work, people making your life miserable, or enemies in the home, maybe. Um, family members who have hurt you with their words, or... And enemies among friends who have done you wrong. Maybe even enemies here in this church. You have people like that in your life. If you're anything like me, it makes you want to draw a sword. That's my instinct, isn't it? That's my nature is to, to be angry, to be hurt, to want to fight back, want to insult back, want to gossip back, root for, for something bad to, hap, to happen to them. Do you, have, do you have that feeling? You know what Jesus says to that? No more of this. It's not what we do. Jesus says. He says, no more swinging the sword. No more vengeful thoughts. No, no more angry words. No more getting even. Instead, when you are cursed, you are to be like me and bless. And when you are abused, you are to pray. And when you are, are, are hurt, you are to serve and trust the Lord to right all wrongs. And when you do, my brothers and sisters, you show them what Christ is like. You show them what the gospel is. For he forgives his enemies and his friends like you and like me. He has healed you when you have betrayed him. You and I should be changed by that love. A man named William Tyndale was. If you were around for our uh, six-week course on recognizing the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, one of the men that we highlighted was this man named William Tyndale, who was 
burdened to translate the Bible into English in the 1520s. Unfortunately, he broke the law in order to do it. It was against English law to have the Bible in English. And for such a crime, Tyndale had to flee England where he would do his translation in living in northern Europe. But unfortunately, Tyndale was only able to be a fugitive for so long. He was eventually caught. And he was caught not because he slipped up, but he was caught because a friend betrayed him. A man he loved, a man he confided in, a man who was often at Tyndale's table enjoying uh, a breaking bread together. And one fateful night, this man named Henry Phillips, he led Tyndale down this dark alley where soldiers were waiting to arrest him. Like Judas, Henry Phillips was paid a large sum of money for his treachery. Tyndale would then spend the next 15 months in prison, and it would all culminate where he would be strangled and then burned. You think, okay, well, here's Tyndale, and he's locked up into this castle, not the Chateau d'If, but perhaps similar to it. And you wonder, what what, what is he thinking? He's got 15 months to sit there. What does he think? His, His life has been ruined. Everything's come tumbling down. Is he hoping like... Edmund Dantes, that he might escape and find some hidden treasure and take some ironic revenge against Phillips. I want you to listen to Tyndale's last letter that he wrote. It was written to a local authority. He wrote, I beg your lordship by the, by the uh, Lord Jesus that if I am to remain here through the winter, Will you request the commissary to have the kindness to send me from the goods of mine which he has a warmer cap? For I suffer greatly from cold in the head. A warmer coat also, for this which I have is very thin. He also has a woolen shirt of mine, if he will be good enough to send it. And, and I ask to be allowed to have a lamp in the evening. It is indeed wearisome sitting alone in the dark. But most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the commissary that he will kindly permit me to have the Hebrew Bible and a Hebrew dictionary that I may pass the time in study. It's clear that Tyndale is suffering. He's trying to make it through a winter in northern Europe in a cold castle without any provisions suffering greatly before his execution. He writes, can he help me out here? But I want you to listen to how he ends his letter. He ends with these words. I will be patient, abiding the will of God, to the glory of the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ. There's a man suffering far greater betrayal than you've ever encountered, isn't he? And there's something that cost him everything. And rather than being filled with this thirst for bitter revenge. He's instead resting, even in the midst of suffering, in Christ's peace and Christ's comfort. You see, Christ, Christ, when Tyndale was his enemy, Christ did not seek revenge on him. And therefore, Tyndale refused to occupy himself with the idea of seeking revenge on his enemies. And by the way, as a result, much like Paul 2,000 years or 1,500 years earlier in Philippi, you know the jailer who kept charge of Tyndale and his daughter for those 15 months eventually bowed their knee in faith to Jesus Christ because of this gracious heart that God had worked into. May God, my brothers and sisters, may his grace change you and I. May it it destroy that darker side of us that wants to get back. May we rather be wronged and be like Jesus than be righted 
and not be like Jesus. May that be our heart's desire. May we, may we love our enemies like Christ has loved you, even if you are betrayed by a kiss. Well, there's a third group that stand in opposition to the Lord Jesus, and it is the, the religious leaders that come with this mob. Consider the religious leaders' ignorance. You know, verse 52, it says, Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers uh, of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? You notice, by the way, there are three groups identified here leading the armed force. There are of the chief priests, there are the officers of the temple police, and there are the elders. In other words, there are the religious leaders, there are the, the military or police leaders, and there are the civic leaders all seeking to kill Jesus. Along with them, they bring a small army. John, in his account, implies that there were about 600 men there to arrest Jesus, uh, armed with clubs and swords. And Jesus raises this question. He's very interested, isn't he? He says, have you come out against me as a robber? Do you think I'm a robber? Have you, is that why you're coming with, with swords and clubs? In other words, Jesus is saying, what, what are you doing? What's going on? In fact, look what he says in verse 53. He says, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. He says, we were talking day after day. I was right in the temple, right? Why not come then? Of course, we know the answer. They're afraid a riot is going to erupt. They're, they're afraid there's going to be this armed resistance. That's why they have, clearly have come with an army, 600 men, all, each one of them armed, because they expect Jesus to fight back, which, of course, proves they don't understand him at all. And, and Jesus is showing them in this question, I am not the man you think I am. I think this is, once again, a, an extension of grace and love. He appeals to them, even as they arrest him, as he declares, I am not a revolutionary, or, or at least not the kind you think. Right? Of course, Jesus is leading a revolution, isn't he? But his revolution doesn't bring about a different king. It brings about a different people. He's, he's not looking to put new people in power. He's looking to put new power in people. Right? That's his revolution. And that's not the kind of revolution you stop with swords and clubs. What are you doing? Don't you realize you don't understand who I am? He says. But they will not listen. And their hearts are given over to evil. Jesus recognizes as much as you see the end there in verse 53. But this is your hour, he says. The power of darkness. This truly is a dark hour, I think, isn't it? Everyone's failed him. Judas, Peter. The violent, the nonviolent, the religious, the irreligious, the high-ranking, the low, his friends, his enemies, they've all failed him. Everyone's failing him. It's not anybody that's standing with Jesus. I think in, in many ways, if you allow this passage, it will, it will paint for you a damning picture on all humanity. That God shows up and everyone fails him. Everyone turns on him. And I read this passage and I can't hear, help but hear uh, my brother Paul speaking in the background from Romans chapter 3. There is no one righteous. No, not one. That includes you. It includes me. You're a sinner too. I think this passage helps us see that. In fact, I think the more you embrace the truth that you are a sinner, the more that is implanted in your heart, the more that will help you. I think if you realize you're a sinner, you'll, you'll find it easier to forgive people that, that come against you. You'll even find it easier to forgive friends that betray you. 
Right? It's, of course, hard to forgive. It's not natural to us, as we've already established. We, we need to get over anger, right? And it's very easy to get angry and bitter, and we get distorted, and we have sleepless nights, and we resentful, and we get filled with self-pity, right? And this is our, kind of how we respond naturally. Like, someone lies against you, and what do you think? Man, they are such a liar. You lie, and it's, well, life is complicated, right? You know, there were the circumstances that led to that, Right? But if they do it, well, they're, they're, they're the sinner. But if you knew that you were a sinner too, just like them that are hurting you, and you may not have committed their sin that, 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 that you're accusing them of, but you've, accused, you've committed 10,000 more that no one accuses you of. You're just like them. I think you would find it far easier to forgive them. In fact, not, not only easier to forgive people that come against you, I think if you truly embrace the truth that you are a sinner, you would... You would you would find that the ill feelings that you might have towards people that are not like you would fade away. I, I, don't, I don't know if you're coming to the same conclusion, but it seems to me that our, our nation, which we love, is increasingly dividing. Anybody else kind of get that sense? Right? And it's, you know, it's this group versus that group, and, and everybody's in a group. And, and you, you, know, you know what the problem with America is? It's always that group. Right? It's not your group, and it's never your group. It's always that group. Right? We can't stand those guys, and if those guys would just go away, everything would, 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 would be right. And, and, it, and so we, you know, we divide on race, right? So we divide on politics, or we divide on religion, or we divide on sexual orientation, we divide on country of birth, right? And I'm not saying we can't have disagreements, but you know what we do is you know, say, well, you know what's wrong with America? They are. It's the liberals, man. It's those liberals. No, it's not the liberals. It's the conservatives. And they're, they're the problem. Well, no, it's, it's, you know, it's the wealthy. If they would just share some of their money, that would fix everything. No, it's the poor. They're lazy. If they get to work, that would solve all. It's, you know, it's the Muslims. Um, they're out to take over. No, it's not the Muslims. The Christians. They're a bunch of bigots. Well, it's, it's the pro-life folk. You know, they just want to tell me what to do with my body. No, it's not the pro-life folk. It's the pro-choice folk. They just want to, to end their babies' lives. It's, well, it's, you know what's wrong with America? It's the racists. It's the white supremacists. No, it, it's not them. It, it, it's the Antifa. That's the problem with America. You know what's wrong with America? It's the Black Lives Matter people. Those, God, my goodness, those people drive me crazy. No, no, no. It's the Blue Lives Matter people because they don't even understand understand the oppression in which those people are experiencing. And you know what? If, if, if we had less immigrants, that would fix America. No, no, no. It's not the immigrants. It's the natives that are, want to build a stupid wall. That's the, that's the problem is, you know, you know what's the problem? You know what's the problem with America? They are. They're the problem. And it's never you. It's never me. No one ever sends me an email or put something on Facebook that says, I figured out the problem, and it's us. It's always them. You know what you have in common with them? You are a sinner, too. You have that in common with every one of them. I'm in no way saying you cannot have convictions, and I have convictions on many of these things. But my friends, if we would allow this truth to impact our heart, you would find yourself to be humbled. I like what one pastor, he tells us stories. Imagine that you and a friend decide to rob a bank. 
And you think, well, I got this is a great plan. We got it all figured out. And, uh, you know, we, with the plan, we're going to, it's insured, so it doesn't even matter, right? And, uh, and so we're, we're just going to go do it. And it's a foolproof plan. And, and you and your buddy, you drive by your, your older friend's house. We'll, we'll call him Mr. J. And you drive by Mr. J's house. And you say, hey, Mr. J, we got this plan. It's going to set us up for the rest of life. We're going to rob this thing. And Mr. J, who's older and wiser, he says, oh, please don't do that. That is a terrible decision. And, and he says, that's, that's not only wrong, I mean, that's sin, that's evil, but you're, something's bad's going to happen. That's going to ruin your life. Do not rob this bank. And you and your friend, well, you don't care what Mr. J has to say. And you say, you don't know anything, Mr. J. And off you go to rob the bank. And Mr. J, is so, he loves you so much, he actually runs and tackles you both. Okay? And he just kind of brings you to the ground. And, and, and your friend is able to get out of Mr. J's grasp, but you are not. And your friend runs off, gets in the car and says, listen, we got the plan. We've been planning this. We've cased the joint. I'm going to do it myself. And your friend, he goes and he robs the bank without you. And it all goes wrong. He ends up killing a bank guard and getting arrested and getting thrown in jail. And he's on death row. And weeks pass or months pass. And you go and you visit your friend in jail. Now, here's the question. What do you say to him? Man, you robbed a bank? Right? Of all the dumb things in the world to do, rob a bank? I mean, what kind of idiot are you? I can't believe you did that. No, you don't say that at all. What do you say? I should be in jail with you. And the only reason I'm not is Mr. J, in his powerful grace, subdued me from the sin I wanted to commit. My friends, if you realize we're all sinners, you will never disdain another group again. That, that will just fade from your heart. Pride would die. Humility and gentleness and love and compassion would begin to flourish in your heart. I love the story that years ago, the London Times uh, invited a bunch of series, uh, um, excuse me, authors to, to answer this question, to write an essay in response to this question, what's wrong with the world? One of the authors they asked was G.K. Chesterton. He wrote back, dear sirs, I am, signed G.K. Chesterton, right? That was his answer. And I think that's what scripture tells us over and over again. But there's the question. If we are sinners, then what is our hope? What hope do we have? Well, I don't know if you notice in this story, there's a, there's a lot of swords in this story, isn't there? there they got two swords, and then they said, can we swing swords? And then Peter's swinging a sword, and then these bunch of other guys, they show up with swords. And, and, and it, it, it reminds me, by the way, of another garden that also had a sword. I think about Genesis chapter 3. Remember when Adam and Eve, they sinned and, and they got kicked out of paradise and removed from God's presence. And, and in order to keep them from coming back, what did God do? He put that flaming sword there. What's that all about? Well, that, that flaming sword is, is, is a picture of the penalty of sin. Like if you want to get back into paradise, if you want to draw into God's presence, you need to go under the sword. You need to face judgment, in other words. In other words, there's no, there's no way back. I can't get back. But what if someone would take that sword for us so that we can return to paradise, so that we can return to God's presence? You know, you notice Jesus in verse 53, he says, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. It's the hour of darkness, Jesus says. It's when darkness reigns. Your, your evil hearts are going to do whatever they will. And, and, of, and of course, um, uh, 
you know, we, we know that if, if Jesus wanted to, he could, have, he could have destroyed these men in a second, right? Swords were not only uh, unnecessary, they were useless. If Jesus didn't want to go with him, you remember John, they said, well, where's Jesus Nazareth? Nazareth? He says, I'm, I'm him, I am. And they all, all just fall down on their bottom. Jesus kind of flexes just for a little bit, and they all just kind of fall down just to show that he's willingly going with them. He could have handled them all with ease. He could have called a legion of angels in a second to come defend him. But he, he goes with them. Why does he go with them? Because he's going to take the sword. Right? He's going under the sword in the hour of darkness. It is the hour that Satan has been longing for. It is the hour of Judas's treachery. It is the hour of Peter's folly. It is the hour of religious leaders and cruel soldiers who will mock, beat, and torture him. It is the hour when the Son of Man will be crucified and died. It is the hour when the forces of darkness triumph. And yet, it's just an hour. Right? Now, I mean, not a literal 60 minutes, but it's short. A day or two, or at the most three, and then the light would begin to dawn, wouldn't it? And the, the reign of darkness would be forever replaced with the dawning of the light of righteousness on Sunday morning. You see what Jesus did? He paid for our sin. You are a sinner, and Jesus has paid for it, that you might go home and be with God, that you might re-enter into paradise. And my hope is that everyone here would have embraced that. Please understand that Jesus did not die on the cross for nothing. He died to pay the debt for sinners. And if you have yet to yield your life to Christ, and then you will have to pay your debt. But if you would cry out to him, God, I love you. I, I believe in you. I submit my life to you. I, I believe that Jesus is the son of God who died for my sin and rose three days later, and I yield my life to you. Forgive me. God will wipe away all your sin. You do that, very, or that, that thing right now, and God would save you. He would bring you into his family by his grace. And for you, Christian brothers and sisters, I hope, pray that this truth would, would change you. I pray that you would see powerfully the grace in which you have received when God could have sought out revenge upon you. Instead, he gave you love. And because he gave you love, any dark desire in your heart for revenge and getting back and withholding forgiveness would fade away in the brilliance of the grace in which you have received. In fact, I think it would be good for us now as we end our service to be reminded of this blood-bought grace through the Lord's Supper. And so I want to invite you, as we prepare to take this meal, to prepare in your own hearts, as you um, pray to the Lord silently, that you might be prepared to rejoice in what Christ has done for you. Let us pray together. Our Father, we are thankful for Jesus. He is our only hope. He is the only hope for sinners like us. And so we rejoice in his love and obedience to you and grace that he extends to us, those who have sinned against him. We rejoice in this meal. Help us, Father, speak to us through it. Pour out your grace upon us in it that we might be more conformed to Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Will the deacons now come forward, please?
As the deacons come forward, I, I would like to invite you, if you're visiting with us today, that you're welcome to celebrate this Lord's Supper if you identify yourself as a Christian of like faith. Uh, if you're not a Christian, we would appreciate it. It would be a blessing to us if you would um, simply uh, just pass the plates by as the Scripture instructs us. Also let you know if you have a gluten allergy.